What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. And you don't do the broken voice when it gets very emotional. When it gets very emotional indeed. She was only 16 years old. She was only 16. You're only supposed to blow the bloody doors off. That's Michael Caine. The impression that started it all. Steve Coogan in the dueling Kane scene from 2011's The Trip. This weekend, the fourth film in the Trip series starring Coogan and Rob Brydon comes to VOD. We'll talk the trip to Greece and share our top five Trip series scenes. That and bloody more. Was that your Michael Caine? (laughs) I had a film spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. You know, if we could remotely pull off Michael Caine impressions, it would be tempting to do the whole show as Michael Caine. No, no one wants that. I, I think we got to get that. We got it out of the way. Let's move on. Well, I wouldn't mind hearing your Pacino, or we could hear your David Bowie, or any of the other countless impressions that Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon pull off in the four-film trip series. We are going to spare you all of that, though. We may have some voices coming later in this show. This week, we're going to devote most of the show to the trip series. The latest trip to Greece comes to VOD this weekend. We will get to some thoughts on that a bit later, but we're going to jump right in to our top five, devoting the entire show to our top five trip series moments. Josh, I imagine this was fairly difficult. I mean, it's difficult because how do you separate them, right? Do you, do you just use the laugh-o-meter and, and go by the ones that you right. laugh the hardest at? I think that's a fair assessment. But then that kind of sets aside, and I think we're going to get to some of these, the more melancholy moments that this series mm-hmm. has also included, and um, some of Winterbottom's, Michael Winterbottom's contributions as a director. So yeah, this was this was really difficult, as I think we'll discover. And I think you will follow suit here. I'm going to call this... The This Is How Michael Caine Speaks memorial list. I think we both agree that's just an all-timer, and it needs to be sort of set aside. It's in its own pantheon of trip impressions, and we're going to get into some more obvious, but also some more esoteric stuff. Yeah, I'm with you. It's the Michael Caine impression memorial list. It's the fountainhead for this series. So didn't even try to rate those against each other and didn't want to give a slot to that. So yes, it's right there at the top. All right, get us started then. You're number five. I'm going to actually have listener Josh Youngerman get us started. Uh, He is, we heard from him recently because he's a huge, like you, Adam, a huge Dark Knight Rises fan. And that does play into his pick here for his favorite moment from the trip series. Hey, Adam and Josh, uh, in film spotting, this is uh, Josh Youngerman calling in uh, to give my favorite uh, moment from the trip series. Uh, my favorite moment is at the beginning of Trip to Italy when um, Steve Coogan and Rob Ryden do their uh, Michael Caine, Christian Bale, and then uh, Tom Hardy as Bane imitation, and not just because I love Dark Knight Rises. Did you see him in The Dark Knight Rises? And his voice gets even more emotional than it's ever done in the past before. I don't want to bury you, Batman. I will not put you into the ground in a little box. I will not do it, Master Bruce. I will not do it. I'm not going to bury another Batman. Another Batman? How many Batmans has he been burying? How many are there? I've buried 14 Batmans I've buried so far. 14 Batman. And a little pointy ears I'm into the box. I'm not going to bury another nylon cloak with pointy ears that people wear at birthday parties. With a little belt, the very There's a moment when Steve Coogan flashes a smile, and it 
it almost looks like he breaks he breaks character and he he's laughing at the fact that uh, Rob Brydon's impression is so funny uh, of Bane, I think it is. And I just love that because you really see the camaraderie between them and how they are really friends in real life. And it's sort of this meta moment. And um, I also just think that the scene is just gut-bustingly hilarious. Uh, the way they go from one impression to the other. And what about Tom Hardy as Bane? Did you catch well, his like, He's like, they like, they're like competing to see yeah. who's the most... The, the least understandable. Bane, you're never gonna beat me, you'll never beat me. Take off your mask, love. I can't catch a word you're saying. He's a wonderful actor, don't get me wrong. No, he's very Tom good. Hardy's no, very, he's, very he's, muscular, he's so he's terrific actor. I know, no, he's a bit he's, terrific he's actor. good. He's scary good. Yeah, scarily yeah, yeah. good. But so I love that that scene starts, of course, with more Michael Caine. <laughs> Again, the Fountainhead. It's where everything begins and we get the great, I've buried 14 Batman so far. 14. Love that that's the number. And they do eventually get around to Tom Hardy's Bane. You know, I'm with Josh completely on all the reasons he listed why this is so fun. I think it probably makes my list, Adam, to be fair, because we did just do our Dark Knight trilogy revisit. So it's fresh in the mind. And and, you know, having liking the character of Bane for the most part, but also I think I acknowledged he can stray a little bit into camp here or there. Um, with that in mind, I definitely did want to put this moment on my list. And to be honest, Adam, my Michael Caine is terrible, just brutal. But I got to say, the, the Bane I did at the top of that Dark Knight trilogy show, pretty good. I, I, think, yeah. I'm, I think I'm close uh, to what they're doing here in this scene. It's Come better on. than your Michael Caine. <laughs> Thank you. It's better than your Michael Caine and their Tom Hardy and Christian Bale, too, I would say, is not among their better impressions. Rob doing the only Christian Bale there, I think. But I do love this scene, and I tweeted about it over the weekend because we just posted that show, and there I am praising the Dark Knight Rises and Tom Hardy and his performance, and then I put on <laughs> the trip to Italy. Italy, and I watched this all play out, and it was definitely coincidence spotting. It also includes one of my favorite moments, and there's at least one more in this quadrilogy, maybe two more. Those moments where they're giving each other a little bit of grief. Someone does an impression, like here, Steve thinks he beats him to it, and he does the bloody doors off Michael Caine bit, and he goes, but I, I did it first, so now you can't. And Rob just so quickly responds, do your Michael Caine. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he just gets him, right? He's yeah. like, is that is that really what you're giving us? And Coogan even has to give a little smile at it. But I love the end of it as well, where they have that little kitchen break and they're talking about how charismatic and formidable and scary yes. both of those guys are as actors. And they do that whole role-playing bit, imagining the phone conversation with the AD, telling them that maybe they should try something different. With their voices. And then the best part, Josh, because I do love this part as well, is when they cap it all off by having Coogan say, I wouldn't say that to his face, though. Right. <laughs> and, and Brian's like, no, no, loved you in Batman. Exactly. Some people say they couldn't understand you, but they're just wrong. They just start backtracking. Yes. <laughs> exactly. So when the impression becomes an actual improv like that, where they're both playing characters, not just doing impressions, but both playing right. characters, yeah. that's some of the richest stuff, right, in this whole series. And it nicely sets up my number five, which is a scene where neither is doing an impression, at least of a figure, an actual figure, though they are doing a certain archetypal movie character. And it's in the trip, maybe about three quarters of the way through, and it's We Rise at Daybreak. 
They're driving along, they're looking at the hills, and Coogan just gets inspired. I would just love to do a costume drama in these hills, just leaping, vaulting over dry stone walls with a scabbard. It's like dead look in my eyes because I've seen so many horrors that I'm sort of immune to. And they always say something like, gentlemen to bed, gentlemen to bed, for we leave it first light. Tomorrow we battle and we may lose our lives. But remember, death is but a moment. Cowardice is a lifetime of affliction. Nice. To bed, for we rise at daybreak. This bit is kind of an outlier, as I said, because it's not a known voice, but also kind of an outlier in that they aren't really competing with each other no. in this one, as they so often are. But they're actually just encouraging each other in the role playing. And that's one of the reasons I like it as well. And in proper improv fashion, they add to each other. So we get that moment where Steve says what really makes it sing death is but a moment. Cowardice is a lifetime of affliction. To bed before we rise at daybreak. And and then says they never leave at 9.30. And then we get that great riff. Gentlemen to bed, for we leave at 9.30. Ish. Ish. Gentlemen to bed, for we rise at... What time's the battle? <laughs> about oh, 12 o'clock? Yes. Right, 12 o'clock. I was about on horseback, about three hours. <laughs> so... We leave about 8, 8.30. 8.30 for nine. Uh, yes. Gentlemen, to bed, for we leave at 8.30 for nine. <laughs> and we rise at just after day, 7.30, so just after daybreak. Gentlemen, to bed, for we leave at 9.30 on the dot. Sire. On the dot. Do you want to have a run, sire, in the morning? So there's an additional two minutes of stuff here that... Some of it works, some of it doesn't. It does inevitably end with an impression. We get a little bit of their Billy Connolly, the only time that comes out in the series. And it's a little bit of a mixed bag. But that 9.30 and Bryden's-ish had me (laughs) dying. And I like, too, Josh, that the whole joke is predicated on something the whole series is, which is language, right? The power of it the absurdity of it, that fine line between being profound one moment and then being a total clown. There is an element of masculinity to it as well, which is such a key theme of the series. And this is one on rewatching all of these films, as I did to prepare for this top five. It really stood out. And I wasn't alone. We heard from longtime listener Henrik Hansen in Maidstone, Kent, not in the north of England, Josh my understanding, southeast of London, I think. But also Chris Knight, a film critic in Toronto, sent us a tweet about this very bit, and I'm with them. It's one of my favorites. Yeah, I think I saw on social, too, that this was maybe the most popular pick from people for their favorite scene. And you're right about the language thing. It it shows you that just three letters, a little tweak, I-S-H, ish. (laughs) That's it. You know, like it just, it sends it right into the perfect, perfect direction. So yeah, this is definitely a great moment. All right, at number four, you know, the comic bits are obviously the highlights of this series, but I do think another hallmark, and here's where we can maybe credit director Michael Winterbottom, are the quiet moments that we do get in every film of the two men apart. So when they separate, often it's at night, maybe they're back in their hotel rooms. Sometimes they'll go out to wander these cities on their own, or I think in Coogan's case, sometimes he's jogging out alone. And we get instances of solitary and silent, really, contemplation. Uh, Aaron Teachman suggested one such moment over on my Larson on Film Facebook page, so I'm going to quote from him. Aaron said, what made me fall in love with the trip and the trip to Italy and was lacking in Spain, according to Aaron, are the silences. 
especially the solitary ones. Those are hard to pinpoint in the movies without a revisit, but I have one of Rob Brydon from Italy just staring out a window from the hotel. And you could tell that in this moment, he can't escape knowing he's done something wrong. The lightness and the drive to talk and the friction are all entertaining. But they slip out of my memory because it's those moments and flashes of self-reflection without words that mark the films as special for me. So yeah, I don't know if I'd go as far as Aaron. I mean, the humor for me is the real draw here, but I am so grateful that this series does pause for these moments. I think it lends it just... um, you know, a deeper level. It's not that it gives it more meaning. It just gives it a, a little more nuance and a little, it expands our understanding of mm-hmm. these men, of these characters who they're playing variations on themselves in ways that makes the whole experience richer than if it didn't have it. So there is that one with Bryden in uh, the trip to Italy. Another listener, Johan Ander on Twitter, he mentioned the moment in the trip when Coogan is alone in his room and tries to do Bryden's man in the box voice in oh, the yeah. mirror. And that's, you know, we really, really get Coogan's insecurity there. Um, yes. Of course, there's loneliness built in. Uh, both of those things are recurring themes. So so that moment and the one Aaron mentioned with Bryden, I think they're good examples of these, these solitary silences. Yeah, I think it's in Spain then where he actually calls him out on that. He says, you can never do it. You'll never be able to do the small man in a box. <laughs> that sounds right. And just, yeah, just has to jab him for it. But you're right. The silences in this series are relatively brief always, especially when you're with Rob, because he just can't keep quiet. He just can't help himself. Even when he's alone in a room, he's going to do impressions. He talks to himself a lot. And that moment, I think that you and Aaron are referring to is the one where Lucy calls the woman that he met on the boat and has had a little bit of a fling there. And then she calls him and it's like, what is he feeling there in that moment? It's, it's guilt surely, but there's also some excitement to it. This, this idea that he's potentially heading down a path that (laughs) Rob Bryden just has no map for whatsoever. He's just he's just not equipped to navigate it. And there's a similar one in Trip to Italy that I really love near the end where he's been cast in that Michael Mann movie and he calls his wife and she's so busy with the home life that she just really isn't interested in talking to him and has to get off the phone. And he does this whole Dustin Hoffman impression to himself saying how much of a disappointment it is and that he was really looking forward to telling her my news. And It's right there, that friction between career or family, the professional life versus domestic life that's really been Coogan's domain for the trip and most of the trip to Italy. But then we really see it come in with Bryden here in this film. And you just feel the distance. You feel the distance in the silence, right, between those two worlds where I feel like Bryden's finally had the chance to cross the streams a little bit. He was he was going to get to be the big success and also share that success with his wife in that moment. And the demands of domestic life just took that away from him and from her. So he's really forlorn about it, that he didn't have that moment with his wife. But also, I feel like it's, oh, that's that's pushing them apart. Well, how about being willing to do those impressions when he is alone like that? Because it just sucks the joy out of them. They become almost creepy, you know? And and this seems like a guy, just a sad guy, um, doing yeah. these things with no audience. So the willingness of Bryden to put himself in a scene like that and and use something that otherwise is a comic gift and elicits laughter and admiration. But when he does it in that context, it just seems really sad, uh, which is another yes. way of bringing nuance to the series. Yeah, I think it's what Coogan calls him out for at one point in the series. He says, anytime 
there's a moment of poignancy, something that involves real feeling, whatever it is, Rob has to do a voice. It's yeah. a defense mechanism almost. He just can't deal with the moment, so he goes to what he knows, what makes him feel comfortable. My number four is a bit from The Trip to Spain, the third film in the series, and you were recognizing there a moment of significance without humor, and I wanted to single out two connected moments here that are rare in the sense that they're not part of an extended riff, like I think so many of the best bits in this series are. Sometimes they are just one-offs, these kind of individual moments of hilarity, and here we get two Rob jokes, pretty much back-to-back, that crack me up. And most importantly, because this is going to come up again, they crack Steve up. It's about 20 minutes into the trip to Spain. It's the place that... Rob is describing as he's reading the guidebook in the car, they're pulling up and he says, it's essentially a barbecue. <laughs> and, and Steve takes a bite of the roll with butter on it and calls it life affirming butter, which is my favorite description of food ever. And <laughs> what butter is isn't life affirming? Really? I mean, it's exactly. <laughs> I'm with you. But just in case you don't know what scene I'm talking about, it's the one that culminates with the scallop and caviar scaramanga bit from Bond, where they keep turning <laughs> oh, yeah. the plate around. <laughs> To force the other to eat it first, which is also really good. It could make this list. But Steve complains about his shoulder. And boy, talk about being able to relate to these characters over the course of this series. I mean, it's the same shoulder, even for me. And (laughs) Steve just kind of stretches it at one point. And Rob can't help but note the analogy. You look like a tentative Nazi. (laughs) Oh... I think what we're doing, you know, is so wrong on so many levels, but I just can't stop. Why are you a Nazi so camp? <laughs> oh, I'm a Nazi. Oh. You tell me, Führer. Herr Hitler. Was he furious? Mm, he will be. <laughs> Again, it's a little bit like my number five pick. It's this discrepancy, just like the brawny soldiers being emasculated by saying 930 instead of daybreak and adding the ish. Here you've got a Nazi who is apparently so bored that that he wavers when doing his his Heil Hitler. And, you know, whether it's a conscious choice or not, this is an entire series wrestling with, and I know we're going to get to it, wrestling with mortality. These locations, all the food, the drink, the women, the roles that they want to have, all the drama in their professional lives and back at home, they're just trying to avoid that inevitable chess game with death like we all are. And part of that is aging and your body deteriorating. And Italy, I think, is where we really see them both jogging in their downtime. And Steve has given up alcohol. It doesn't take in the trip to Italy. It does finally take in the trip to Spain. And I think it's the one where Steve points out how women of a certain age now don't even look at him or Rob. They, they don't even see them as lascivious. They're just not, they're not a threat in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> they're certainly not a threat to have sex with them, right? That's just not on the table. And that all perfectly sets up then the very next joke. The server brings out another plate, mussels with carrot juice. Wow. Well, here it is, Mr. Coogan. We managed to get it out. Um, I mean, the good news is it's benign. The bad news is we found seven more of them. Some of them gone into the lymph nodes. So this is Bryden's genius again, taking what he's been given, what's been literally set down in front of him, and finding the joke in it, the shape and the texture of the food, the tweezers they're given to eat it with that look like medical instruments. And then the best part of it all for me, 
Steve, not trying to top it or disparage Rob in some way, just unabashedly laughing. When he unabashedly yeah, laughs always at Rob and vice versa, but it's mainly Steve laughing at mm-hmm. Rob because he's the harsher critic. He never wants to admit that Rob got him, but here he just can't help it, and that gets me every time. So Tentative Nazi was an honorable mention for me, and it, I want to go back to your point about language here because in that moment, Rob Brydon finds the perfect word. You know, he's not a shy Nazi. He's not an unsure Nazi. Neither of those words are as funny. Tentative. (laughs) That's the word he needed. And he found it in like half a second. All right. For my number three, we're back to another impersonation. David Bowie, the trip to Spain. Now this starts out ruminating on Bowie's death, which had happened recently. And of course it goes pretty quickly from there into a competition this time about whose star between Coogan and Bryden, whose star orbited closest to Bowie's and Bryden shockingly to us, but even more so to Coogan, he has the advantage. I told you about the time he was on the radio and uh, he wanted to mention me, but couldn't remember my name. Really? Mm. He's being interviewed, and uh, the interviewer said, what, what do you do when you're um, on tour on the bus? And he said he watched Cruise of the Gods, that we did. And he said, you know, the one that stars that guy. And he really? said, who? Yeah, he said, who? And I was in the kitchen, and I, oh, my God, he's about to mention me, David Bowie. So he didn't mean me? No, 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 because he said, you know, the one from Marion and Jeff. Really? Yes. He said Marion and Jeff? Yes. Wow. Yeah. And, and, I, and I was going, it's me, it's me. And the interviewer was going, no, I don't know. I don't know. So he never said my name, but he was thinking of my face at that moment. And when he died, I looked at his Twitter feed. And do you know what, Steve? He followed me on Twitter. I love Bryden's humble brag delivery of this, right? He just, because mm-hmm. this is a hammer that he could just bring down on Coogan's head. The, the fact that yeah. Bowie followed him on Twitter. But it's almost as if he's been holding this in his pocket for, for you know, months, years, maybe even, just for the very right moment to drop it. And, and he does here just beautifully. Uh, of course, it does devolve into another impression competition. And that one Mm -hmm. has the added benefit of a song thrown into the mix. So uh, I like that bit. And yeah, it's just, I think it's almost one of their most dead on impressions, at least to me Mm. in terms of the delivery. Uh, Though I do have to say, if you're, if you're looking for more Bowie impressions, I would also point you to Jermaine Clement in the HBO series, flight of the Concords. That is gold as well. But yeah, this one had this Bowie impression, one of my favorites in the series, so I've got it at number three. And I know you won't like this. There right, would have been a time when he sat there with his phone and went, shall I follow him? Shall I follow him? Shall I think I... I shall. He's funny. Shall I follow Rob Brydon? I think I shall. Shall I follow Rob Brydon? Or shall I follow Rob Brydon in my later years? And that is when it was in his later years. And he would have pressed on that button and clicked and followed me and seen every tweet. Yeah, I feel bad about this because there are so many funny moments and great moments to choose from in this whole series. And I'm going to get to some more honorable mentions. I can't believe that I have an overlap with you, but I've got it at number three as well. I just think it is one of the best impressions in the series. I'm glad you mentioned how dead on they are. I think if you got a group of 10 or 20 people together, 
you might have split votes sometimes on who's actually doing the better impression. Sometimes one does the better impression of the same person from movie to movie. In other words, Steve maybe doesn't do it as well in the trip, but then they do it later in Italy or Spain. And yeah. I think he's improved it, right? So it can vary from time to time, but their Bowies are both perfect. And I do love that touch as well. I love that you see Coogan maybe kind of trying to find his Bowie a little bit yeah, as yeah. he's doing it. Definitely. But then he really, he really nails it. And I think it was so appropriate for this list for me as well, just in terms of it being about mortality as we touched on, it being such an essential part of this series. And I mentioned it when we reviewed the trip to Spain originally. I remember David Bowie passing, and I didn't have a deep attachment to him, although I certainly respected his music and admired him as an artist. But I just saw him as such an icon, and I understood the reverence people had for him that when he passed, I was just like, well, what hope is there for the rest of us? Mm -hmm. If David Bowie's actually going to die, it was like he was immortal. I really felt that when he did pass away. And so then to watch the trip to Spain and have them basically say the same thing, right? That's how they describe Bowie and how perfect they thought his death ultimately was, how it was an artistic act. And this is a whole series of artistic acts. So the Bowie one for me just had to make the list as well. All right, we're going to take a break from the trip talk. We have a new film spotting poll up ahead. It's a very difficult one involving Steven Spielberg. Then we're going to share some thoughts on the new trip film, The Trip to Greece, before getting back to our favorite trip moments. Stay with us. Son, if your heart can feel love, don't play it down. You only fall when nobody's near you and won't make a sound. You've been misled all your life. Time to come around. And let your burden be something that you can burden me with. I'll make room. But let the record show, even amid a record low, you came in. If you're gonna keep your heart open. To me, it's the ideal way to make a film is to kidnap a group of collaborators and go off to some remote place because you never you never stop working. I mean, you do stop working, but but your off time, your off hours are feeding directly into what's going to happen the next day on set. It's just it's really beautiful. That's director and Lynn Shelton from my conversation with her back in 2012, coinciding with the release of her film, Your Sister's Sister. Shelton passed away. This past weekend, she was only 54 years old. And Josh, we are talking about this trip series. We've mentioned how mortality is a running theme, and we go from sort of the playful approach to that topic to really just the crushing blow of it. When I heard this Saturday, the news was devastating. It was partly because I had actually had an interaction with her, and she was so incredibly insightful and thoughtful and generous with her time. Just her spirit was so apparent in that conversation, 
in her films and I think just so needed in cinema. I am just really saddened by it. Yeah, I can't imagine if you had had a chance to sit down with her as you did and get to know her a little bit, what it would have felt like to have heard this. I mean, the, the first question I had was, how old was she? Um, because I just knew this was, you know, not supposed to happen to someone who is who is 54. So a director who Your Sister's Sister is one of the films that I did see of hers, um, which I enjoyed quite a bit. Hump Day as well, mm -hmm. um, I thought was really strong. And she just made these fascinating character studies, group character studies, really, that put people in squirmy situations and, and kind of let human nature play out and see what would happen there. That's why the way she describes in that clip in her interview with you, her working process makes absolute sense because it just seems like uh, this collaborative sensibility that you experimental, you know, mm -hmm. you wanted to see, have a narrative and kind of have this setup of people in a really uncomfortable situation and then, and then kind of see where things would go. So definitely a real loss. Yeah. And coincidentally, also like the trip movies, a similar approach. As you heard, she is someone who had these very structured scripts when they approached the filming. And then once they started filming, it was improv based and it was all about spontaneity and these actors really inhabiting these characters. And it was something I thought was really special about her work. Her feature debut was 2006's We Go Way Back. It didn't get a U.S. theatrical release until 2011. So a lot of people saw My Effortless Brilliance first. That came out in 2008. Hump Day is when she really got on my radar in 2009, starring yeah. Mark Duplass and Joshua Leonard. And I loved that film so much. I remember how pleased I was to tell her right before we started taping that that was one of my favorite films of the prior decade. And she seemed genuinely pleased to hear that. Your Sister Sister followed also with Mark Duplass, Touchy Feely, Laggies, and Outside In in 2017, among the films made by Lynn Shelton. And then she made two films. She directed two comedy specials that I've seen and loved with Mark Marin, Too Real in 2017 and this year's End Times Fun. And I have to confess that I've been a longtime WTF listener, but over the past six months have been a little bit sporadic for a variety of reasons. I've just been in and out and I knew that they were close. She directed him in her recent film, Sort of Trust, and I knew she had done these specials. And I remember hearing at least one episode where she was in the background and he commented on Lynn being there in the room. But Josh, I just didn't know. I hadn't listened closely enough. I wasn't aware that they were in love. They were a couple. And you know how it is when you listen to podcasts religiously. You really feel like you know these people. I feel like I know Mark Marin, and I'm already devastated that the film world lost Lynn Shelton, that any family and friends that she had lost Lynn Shelton. And then I think about Mark having that burden as well. It was really a tough thing to have to hear over the weekend. Well, in his podcast, uh, in the aftermath of this, I, I don't know how much I time, haven't heard yet. You know, with, within a week. Oh, yeah, I'm I mean, not prepared. I'm not prepared for it. No, I mean, a lot of it is a replayed interview the first interview where they met on his podcast from years ago. So he replays some of that, which is, you know, I think kind of cool to be able to hear her voice and talk about being alive and work she was doing. Mm -hmm. But yeah, his setup to that, where he, he just talks about where he's at, you know, obviously, hopefully therapeutic choice for him to do that, but to hear someone put themselves in that place, it's really raw. So yeah, yeah be ready if you're thinking about listening to that. I know I will at some point, but 
I just have to brace myself for it. We did hear from one of Shelton's early collaborators, actually, Seattle actor Basil Harris. He appeared in Laggies and We Go Way Back, and he was the co-lead in My Effortless Brilliance. Here are Basil's thoughts on the passing of Lynn Shelton. Hey, Film Spotting. This is Basil Harris. I'm an actor based in Seattle. I was incredibly lucky to uh, know Lynn and work with her on many projects, more than I actually remembered when I first started to think about it. And I don't want to undermine Lynn's passion and talent and ambition by saying that she was inclusive. Many artists are inclusive, and that's a great way to be. But Lynn had this ambition, this drive, and this focus that really was hard to come by, and it still is. She had a background in theater, in acting. She had a background in photography. She had a background in documentary filmmaking. She knew how to talk to actors on set and work with them because she knew their language. She knew how to storyboard and talk to a a DP about setting up shots and framing and lighting to get exactly the look that she wanted because she knew about photography. She knew about documentary filmmaking, so she knew how to work with a crew. She knew how to work small and lean, um, stealing shots, getting what she wanted without giant setups. So she came to narrative filmmaking with a real uh, advantage. But, But more than that, she had a drive. She knew what she wanted. She had this ambition, this focus, that even though everybody was having a good time on set, there was never any doubt that it was Lynn's vision. And she wasn't an autocrat. You know, she didn't rule with an iron fist. She ruled with a laugh. She ruled with a smile. She ruled with an invitation, which is a very rare thing to find. And in Seattle, that manifested into inspiring other filmmakers, specifically women filmmakers, to come up to do more, to actually take charge and take the lead of the the entire scene here in Seattle. People like Megan Griffiths, Mel Eslin, Lacey Levitt, um, Cornelia Durier, Janessa West, S.J. Chiro. Women filmmakers uh, make up most of the big names in the Seattle filmmaking scene, and that's hugely uh, part of Lynn's influence and her legacy. And I just, I think that uh, losing a hometown hero is always hard. Um, I don't compare her lightly to Kurt Cobain in that way. Um, You know, she started here and then just rocketed to success. Um, And it was an, it was a, an adjustment for a lot of us to watch our, to watch our Lynn move on into, into the big spotlight of LA. But, um, you know, she didn't owe us anything. And yet she was always very loyal to her people in Seattle and I'm personally very grateful for, for her influence on me and the, the experience and the opportunities that she gave to me. But I'm more grateful for the way that she inspired and led an entire film scene to, to do better and make better films. Um, thanks, guys. Thank you, Basil. Thank you, Lynn Shelton. And as if that wasn't all bad enough, Josh... We lost Fred Willard as well over the weekend, 86 years old, different circumstances, obviously. We just saw him in This Is Final Tap as part of our 8 from 84 series. And of course, he's on screen for about 30 seconds and he still kills it as an Air Force officer or an Army officer in that film. Mm -hmm. And when you think of Willard, you, of course, think of the Christopher Guest movies like Waiting for Guffman and Best in Show for your consideration of Mighty Wind. He was an all timer, Fred Willard, just in terms of comedy. He's he's up there. Best in Show, for me, 
is the highlight providing color commentary at a, at a dog competition. I, I think, and maybe this is something you could trace through a lot of his characters, but the sheer obliviousness yeah. to, to his character's idiocy was seems to be kind of his major gift, you know? Even as moronic as so many of these characters were he played, you kind of envied that they were just so happy in their own little world. <laughs> and and that's kind of what he brought to so yeah. many of his scenes. So yeah, a real loss, Fred Willard. His final credit is in the upcoming Space Force starring Steve Carell that comes to Netflix next weekend. So plenty of films to appreciate featuring the unique talents of Fred Willard, and we have something more that we can check out as well. Next week on the show, our Christopher Nolan overview rolls on with 2006's The Prestige. We will now go, Josh, in chronological order. We've buried all the Batmans, just like Michael yes. Caine. <laughs> and we can lay that to rest, move on, continue through the series. And I'm really eager to revisit this film. Liked it quite a bit when it was reviewed on the show originally, but I know many people think it's Nolan's best or certainly among his top two or three. Yeah, huge fan of this one. I am as well, so can't wait to revisit. I think it's been quite a while. I believe I've seen it twice, um, but it's been a number of years, so that should be good. We do have some golden brick spotting planned as well. Josh, you had a chance to see the low-budget sci-fi mystery, The Vast of Night, which comes to Amazon Prime. Next weekend, I'm hoping to catch up with it as well. And we've both seen the documentary The Painter and the Thief. That's currently available via VOD, definitely recommended by me. Yeah, I'd recommend it too. We're going to have a crowded field for the Golden Brick this year, I think. Just the way things have have fallen into place with theaters being closed, we're kind of seeking out some more of this sort of stuff that's available on demand. And so far, it's been mostly good stuff. So yeah, I'm looking forward to talking about both of those. Yeah, I think I've alluded to it before. We're seeing a lot of these smaller films, quote unquote, smaller films, indie films that are playing VOD. That's the stuff we're getting to check out on demand and not these big studio releases. And I do think that means we're going to have a very crowded golden brick field, which is not a bad thing. Nope, not at all. So a show where we're hearing a lot of impressions in clips from the trip series, Adam, maybe good. We don't have massacre theater on this show to do, to perform ourselves. Cause we couldn't, you know, we couldn't hold up to them, but we are going to play a clip from last week's massacre theater, massacre theater. Of course, the part of the show where we perform a scene from a movie, you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt. So here you go. In case you missed it, a bit of last week's massacre. That's your territory. They're just renting it. Turn around, Cooper. Don't be a fool. We can do this easy, or we can do it real easy. You try it. So I disparaged both of us yeah. after our performance. Oh, yeah. Uh, but I got, uh, Adam, you've gotten some support. I, I've seen some emails coming in thinking that you pulled your weight. I, yeah. I as I admit, was, was brutal. Um, but some people kind of, they knew where you were going. Yeah, I do think I probably had the easier part. But in the moment, I haven't re-listened to it. But in the moment, I felt like it was one of my top five Massacre Theater performances ever. And so then when you okay. immediately just shot me down, <laughs> like Coogan shooting down Bryden on everything, uh -huh. I was like, really? Yeah. I really thought I nailed it. And fortunately, the majority of the feedback has been positive, Josh. Yes. Well, hey, that's what I'm here for, Adam. If you know what film we massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. The deadline is this coming Monday, the 25th. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced on next week's show. 
every two weeks on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show. You'll find a new movie pairing, a recent release, and a classic. They kicked off a new double feature this week, the new How to Build a Girl, starring Beanie Feldstein, and one of my favorite films of all time, Cameron Crowe's Almost Famous, two movies about rookie music writers. And Josh, I will say that that's where the similarities end. Mm, yeah, you've seen How to Build a Girl. And yeah. because of your cool reception, I haven't put it at the top of my viewing list. You got to be nervous, though. I mean, I'm pretty sure Scott Tobias will have your back on Almost Famous. I, I think I know he's a big fan. But yes. man, what if you, what are you going to do if someone else like, oh, I don't know, Tasha? comes after the movie your beloved almost famous you know what i didn't really think of that but i had already texted scott because i know how big of a fan he is of almost famous and i saw his letterbox review of how to build a girl and i think he gave it the same very low star rating that i gave it i I haven't given a star rating that low in a really long time and i texted him and said so i guess i should expect Tasha's praise on the next picture show then this week, right? (laughs) Because if he's for it, she's going to be against it and vice versa. And he said she tried to defend it. I haven't listened yet, but apparently Mm. she did muster a defense. You know, Tasha can do that incredibly well. She was outnumbered this time significantly, though. All right. Well, I'll look forward to listening to that myself. New episodes of the next picture show they post every Tuesday. Find them wherever you get your podcasts and find more information at nextpictureshow.net. One way that you can support Film Spotting is to join the Film Spotting family over on Patreon. As a Film Spotting patron, you get ad free episodes, early downloads, live show pre sales and discounts, a merch discount, and the best of the bunch monthly bonus episodes. We are about due for this month's bonus episode. It's going to drop on Monday, the 25th. A We Were Probably Wrong Once review of Wes Anderson's The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. Sam, our beloved producer, former co-host, co-founder of the show with me, he was always with me on this. He was always with me that this was by far Wes Anderson's worst film. For me, his only disappointment, true disappointment as a filmmaker. And he's already published his review on Rewatch over at Letterboxd. And Sam is all in. I think he might get the tattoo. I think he might get the tattoo that you said you were going to get. That's how much he loved this movie. (laughs) Oh, thank you, Sam. That is so good to hear. Now, don't file that away and go into your reviewing of Life Aquatic with a grudge, Adam. Just wanting to still be the negative guy. Have you already watched it? I've already rewatched it. By your face. I've, I've, let's just, let's just move on. Oh, no. Let's just move on. Oh, Okay, fine. We'll save it for later. We'll save it for Patreon bonus. Yeah, we have a whole bonus show for you to just annihilate me, Josh, for my reaction to this film. I can't wait. We do want to thank some new patrons, some new family members. We should have been doing this all along. I apologize to everyone we have overlooked to date, but some new family members, Josh, include Edward, Charles, Bastion, Aaron with an E, Jim, Luke, Nick, Alice, Duncan, Jesse, Max, Devin. Aman, William, and Andrea. Thank you to all of them. Thank you to everyone who is a family member. And I want to share just this little bit of feedback we got from a new family member, Josh Dave in Boston. Hi, guys. Since December, I've been on pause with your show. It's not you. It's my work life. And I just started up again. I just got to the show wherein you announced your Patreon. So I had to sign up now. 
It's funny and weird listening to you making plans for movies and travel in a pre-COVID time. Feels like better times. Anyway, I'm so glad you guys started a Patreon. I support a handful of other podcasts this way, and it's my preferred method of support. I don't need a reminder. It just happens. Looking forward to hearing how you accommodate our new normal, and I hope everyone is well. And yeah, that's from Dave in Boston. We're certainly doing what we can, and we want to thank Dave and everyone who supports the show, including some folks, Josh, who are still contributing via PayPal. We will share some of those names next week on the show. If you want to support us over on Patreon, that's really where you're going to get the most bang for your buck. Get some of those extra benefits. Patreon.com slash filmspotting. Do you feel this vehicle is safe for highway travel? Yes, I do. Yes, I really do. I, I, I believe that. I know it's not pretty to look at, but it'll get you where you want to go. Now, you got no outside mirror. No, we lost that. You have no functioning gauges. No, not a one. However, the radio still works. Funny <laughs> as that may seem, with all this mess, that the radio is the only thing that's really working good, and it's as clear as a bell. Don't ask me how. <laughs> John Candy with Officer Michael McKean in 1989's Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, written and directed by... John Hughes. A couple weeks back, we were looking ahead to this show devoted to the trip series. We asked you the following question. What's your favorite buddy road trip comedy? The unfortunately white and male centric options we gave you were the Blues Brothers, Dumb and Dumber, Midnight Run, Planes, Trains and Automobiles, Sideways, The Trip or other. You could write in something that wasn't unfortunately white and male centric. Josh, how did it come out? So other is in last place with 6% and midnight run here, Adam, only 12%. So what? those who are, those who are curious about it being in the film spotting pantheon will obviously they'll remain curious next week. Sacred cow. All right. Hey, I'd love to do it. Sideways. Follow that up with 13% dumb and dumber, 14%. Man, they're packed together here. Yeah. The trip 15% and the blues brothers at 16%, but edging out the win with 23% of the vote was planes, trains and automobiles. Betty says it has to be that hands down. It's not Thanksgiving without at least one viewing. I'm fond of all on the list, but candy and Martin build the best buddyhood. And I like the Chicago connection too, even though it's tenuous at best. So are you ready for this film spotting admission? I have always said that I've seen planes, trains, and automobiles because I'm pretty sure I have over the years seen enough scenes from it to constitute mm. watching the film. But I am confident, mm. Josh, I'm confident that I have never sat in one viewing and taken in all the comedic glory that is planes, trains, and automobiles. I always feel like an outsider when people wax rhapsodic and nostalgic about that film. It it just wasn't one of those movies for me. It was earlier John Hughes stuff. And I obviously need to see it again. I need to see it for real. You have lost all credibility, Adam yeah, Kempinar. I knew it. Let's hear from Barb Vetter in New Haven. Being a native Chicagoan, I have to go with the Blues Brothers. Film, music, solid gold. So many quotable lines. Mishaps and silly gags all happening while on a mission from God. Orange whip, orange whip, orange whip, three orange whips. <laughs> Zane DeVault says, it's between Blues Brothers and Planes Trains. I guess Blues Brothers wins out so as not to piss off Princess Leia with an M16. Fair enough. Yeah, yeah, that's that's kind of a rough scene from Blues Brothers. Here's Aaron Crabtree. I can tell from the results of this poll that not enough people have watched Midnight Run. You see there what I'm doing? Go, I'm, I'm, I'm putting my right index finger on my nose, Josh. That means Aaron's right on the nose. Susan Thompson, it's 1988. My sophomore year in college, no money and video rentals were the only form of entertainment. A hot summer night. I love this story. It's like Jim Thompson 
We're we're getting film noir pulpy here. 104 degrees with only a swamp cooler in Phoenix, Arizona. I still remember how much I laughed and played over and over again the moment when De Niro threatened to kill Charles Grodin while on the phone and then did this great shaking head move to assure Grodin that he was lying to the bail bondsman boss. If that isn't comedic timing, I don't know what is. Thank you for reminding me of this sweet memory. I'm going to Amazon right now. All I want to know is what in the heck is a swamp cooler? Can, can you, we don't can have you those. help me, Adam? We don't have those in Chicago, I don't think. No, I, I guess it doesn't get that hot. Here's Jeremy. Came to this poll thinking the trip, but by the time I was ready to pick, I was already quoting lines from Dumb and Dumber out loud and laughing huh. at myself. Dan Carmody was in the same boat, came here to vote for the Blues Brothers and ended up siding with Dumb and Dumber. I grew up on them both as a 90s kid and they hold a special place in my heart. But endlessly quoting Dumb and Dumber with my wife is a foundation of our marriage's success. Oh, wow. Hey, we've got a third orange whip here. Aaron Bergstrom, justice for Harry and Lloyd. (laughs) Joshua Burwald says two guys forced to drive across the country together, become best friends and launch a massive franchise at the same time. The fact that they're a frog and a bear are totally inconsequential. Here's another, (gasps) Josh. It's the Muppet movie by a mile. Oh, Joshua, you're speaking my language. Yeah. A vote for other. I love it. Zach in Chicago, another vote for other here. He wants to know, where is some like it hot? Does that count as gender diversity? Uh, Jack sure. Lemmon and Tony Curtis in dresses? I, I think we're in such desperate need of it. We'll go yeah. with it. I don't know that I can abide, though, them taking the train. I think that's how they get everywhere in that movie. That's not a road trip. Mm, I'm going to accept the train. Really? I accept it. I think yeah. you got to spend most of your time in the car, but this will be another argument for another time. We end with our wonderful PA, an essential worker during this time. Thank you, Kat Sullivan, for everything you're doing. She says, I still pick Thelma and Louise, gentlemen, comedy or not. We got to get some gender diversity in here, and I'm not going to argue with her, Josh. Our new poll question is related to a film like Midnight Run that's been in our pantheon for a very long time going back to the earliest days of the show and yet or maybe because of that fact we've never really given it any time steven spielberg's jaws celebrates its 45th anniversary this year and of course you know where i'm going with this the part of that that obviously depresses me the most is that if that movie is that old then i'm that old too yeah this is a rough one and let's let's not date ourselves too much. I mean, I was born in 74. You are, you're 75. Is that right? Yeah, 75. Okay. Jaws so this is me. one of those Jaws movies. Jaws is older than me, Josh. Yeah. And, and this is one of those movies that feels like it's from our childhood. Cause I think that's when we first encountered it and it scarred right. us, but, but we're really like not so old that we saw Jaws when it came out as kids. <laughs> all right. No, no, we definitely did not came to theaters June, 1975. And let's face it. The movies were never quite the same afterward. Our trips to, the swimming pool, forget the ocean, forget the sea or any kind of lake or river. Just my local swimming pool was never the same after seeing Jaws. Silver Lake, Silver Lake in Michigan, Adam, infested with great whites. (laughs) With sharks, I know, great white, you're right. In two weeks, we're going to give it the great white slash sacred cow treatment. We're going to talk about Jaws. Now, when was the last time you saw Jaws, Josh? Um, I probably when I showed it to the kids. So a couple years ago, I think it's been it's been relatively recently. I can't yeah. wait to watch it again. I've seen it like, oh, it's one of the movies I've seen. I've rewatched the most, I think, in my life. Hmm. Yeah, it's definitely not that for me. I saw it 
a ton growing up. It was always on, but a little bit like planes, trains, and automobiles. Because of that, I never sat down and really watched it, really studied it. And I think it was maybe 2012, around that time when Lincoln came out and we were revisiting Spielberg and doing our top five Spielberg scenes, I said, okay, I really have to sit down and give this movie the time and attention that it deserves. And it did not disappoint then. I doubt it's going to disappoint now. So we're going to pair that sacred cow with a Sam idea here. It's not the Chris power ranking, but it is a power ranking of the Spielberg filmography. Specifically, A little less important yeah, than the yeah. Chris power ranking. Of course. We're going to power rank the five decades that Spielberg's been making movies. So our poll question is really an opportunity for us to get your answer. And we have kind of positioned it less of a power ranking because poll questions don't allow for such nuance, Josh. It's more of a madness style death match. If you could only keep one decade of Spielberg's work, what would it be? Here are your options. The 70s, which includes four features, five if you include Duel, which originally aired on TV. But the big ones from that decade, the aforementioned Jaws and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Maybe you want to go with the 80s. Seven features during that decade, including Raiders of the Lost Ark, as well as the rest of the indie trilogy and a little movie called E.T. How about the 90s? You've got six features there, Jurassic Park, Schindler's List, and Saving Private Ryan among them. And then in the 2000s, seven features that decade, my beloved AI, artificial intelligence, possibly, possibly his best, eh, could be, mm. along with Minority Report and Catch Me If You Can. And then the 2010s gave us seven features. Man, I... I wouldn't have guessed he was that busy in the 2010s, but he was, including Lincoln, War Horse, and Bridge of Spies. Yeah, so just going on quantity, the 80s through the 2010s with 7, 6, 7, and 7 movies respectively, that should give you more options to choose from, perhaps more great stuff to choose from, perhaps more mediocre stuff. You look at the 70s with only four features, not counting dual, at least by Sam's math. There's a lot of stuff that Spielberg made in the 70s doing some TV work that I'm not sure exactly how you're supposed to consider it. But I think by my math, if you start with the Sugarland Express, I think in 74, that's supposedly his feature debut as a director. He's made 31 movies, and I have not seen seven of them. Josh, how are you doing when it comes to Spielberg blind spots? I think I'm a little bit better than that, if only because I've managed to see some of that 70s stuff. I mean, I, I would not sleep on Duel, and I think it's I like legitimately Duel. worth considering here. Oh, it's it's great. Uh, Sugarland Express, I think it's really good mm -hmm. and actually is an early example of the lightness that you'll see in some of his later stuff, like Catch Me If You Can. It's almost like that went away for a little while, but it is there in Sugarland Express. So, so yeah, I... I have not even sat down to really think seriously about this because it's so daunting to have to choose among all of these. And really, I'm glad we're doing this because Spielberg is a filmmaker that I think a lot of people have started to take for granted a little bit. And I know I haven't exactly done that, but I'm kind of leaning in that direction. Didn't even I haven't even seen Ready Player One, for example. And previous to that, I would never have thought about missing a Spielberg film. So I'm glad we're doing this, which will kind of reposition him and make him make him relevant, even if it's just to mm -hmm. my mind again. I saw Ready Player One because we talked about it on the show. I think Tasha Robinson filled in for you on that show, which is why you weren't forced to see it. The BFG is one of his most recent films that I didn't see. Did you like that one? I can't remember. You know, the BFG, I think it was one. That's where some of my... 
I don't know, where I started to fade a little bit because I just thought that was a killer match of filmmaker and a Roald Dahl story. And I did like it, but it was almost, I I can tell it was almost because of that anticipation rather than what he ended up pulling off. Hmm. I did post on Twitter a few days ago, which of my Spielberg blind spots, and I only picked three, does the Twitterverse think I should rectify first. And the choices I gave were three of those early films, 1941, Always, and The Sugarland Express. Always came in last, 23. 1941, close with 26. Sugarland Express really took it with 51%. Sounds like that's how you would steer me as well, Josh. Yeah, definitely. I think that's the way to go. That's the one you don't want to miss. 1941 is, you know, it's one of those disasters that uh, has that reputation and you keep waiting for someone to come along and reclaim it and they just never do because it's it kind of just doesn't work maybe you could be that person adam if you end up watching 1941 but sugarland express is really strong i would check that out if you can now i did strategically leave out the movie that is probably the biggest Spielberg blind spot I have in terms of its acclaim. Didn't win any Oscars, but was nominated for 11 of them. I've even read the Alice Walker book, The Color Purple. I've written about it in classes in college, but for whatever reason, I've never seen the Spielberg movie. I left it out because I wanted to see how the voting would go without it. I wonder if I'd included it, if that would have been the clear winner. Yeah, I I think it's, I don't like it as much as Sugarland Express. It's kind of you can see him feeling his way towards seriousness in his filmmaking there. So it's interesting on that level, but I don't know if he's quite found that balance at that point with, uh, with the color purple. Well, in early voting in our poll, it's playing out as you would probably expect the eighties are in the lead, but it's a virtual tie for second between the seventies and the nineties. And I think mm. the real dilemma here for listeners and for us, as we do this power ranking next week, is the one that longtime listener Brett Merriman in L.A. articulated on Twitter, which is maybe you're inclined to go with the 70s because you rank Spielberg's films and you say Jaws and Close Encounters, those two alone are my top two or in my top three or my top four. But if you do it madness style, film spotting madness style, the Sam Van Halgren test where all the other decades are going to be thrown into the fire and you can never watch any of these films again, who among us, Josh, other than Michael Phillips, who among us... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> is going to say, yeah, go ahead and take Raiders of the Lost Ark. Go ahead and take E.T. Yeah. Those two, that would be really hard for me. But then again, when I sit down and watch Jaws again, yeah, I might be willing to do it. I'm just glad, Adam, that you and I don't have to make that difficult choice. The listeners do in the poll. You and I just get to rank them That's right. when, we, when we get to our list. So I like that. Vote in that film spotting poll now. The stakes could not be higher. Filmspotting.net. Leave a comment, and we may just share it on that Spielberg show in a couple of weeks. This is the fourth time we've been on one of these little jaunts. We're retracing the the steps of Odysseus. Greeks were camped here ten years. I can do a week tops with a pillow. I won't camp without a pillow. It's a shame we're getting the ferry. We're going to get to our final two picks in our top five trip series moments here in a moment. But we're going to start with the trip to Greece. You just heard the trailer for the new film, the fourth and final entry in the series. Josh, was this for you a worthy culmination? You know, we could ask this question of of everything we watch nowadays, um, but would this feel as refreshing and satisfying if we weren't 
under the specter of COVID-19, right? It's it's just right. this is comfort food, which feels so good right now, is, is to get these guys yeah. together again in gorgeous locales, eating great food, even if I'm still not convinced they, they appreciate it enough, and, and just tr- going back and forth, comedically going back and forth. So it's absolute comfort food. It was great to see again. Um, you know, when I think of it as a culmination, I may be a little let down and and maybe they'll come hmm. back again. And that's only because, Adam, you and I were so over the moon for the trip to Spain for all of the usual reasons. But that really provocative ending it had where, you know, I don't want to say too much because it's one of my picks. I'll, I'll go into it more when we get back to our list. But that was just so interesting to me. And I don't mean that this, you know, this film had to pick that up again. But it's almost like a U-turn from that ending back towards something like the trip to Italy, where they're mm-hmm. doing a lot of the same stuff, doing it expertly. I mean, there is hilarious stuff in here, um, but it's yeah. it's the fourth time, so it is a little bit more familiar. I think that I think the um, the mortality element is maybe the part that does feel a little forced this time around. Um, it's almost like. Uh, that's always been a part of our movies. We need that. So we're going to have Coogan's, Steve Coogan's dad, you know, be ailing and he has to call back and check on how he's doing. Um, so I guess it was it was familiar, but in this moment, it still felt great. It felt really great to me. And you're so right. I was watching it with Sarah and maybe the first place they go and they're biting into the food and she just says, I miss restaurants. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And, you know, that's that's really what this is. It's food porn. It's location porn. And at this point, it's just being outside porn. Right. You know, I mean, it really is. Oh, my gosh. So you're right. There's something to that. And yet I think probably under any circumstances, I would really go for this film. And in this case, I did watch. I might have even done it a little bit of a disservice by watching the three previous films mm. before I saw this one. And even watched the trip to Spain the same day I watched the trip to Greece. So then I couldn't really take it as its own film. I really was seeing it as the fourth film in the series. But at the same time, Josh, I was so dialed into the format and the formula, if you will, that, you know, I noticed, of course, that the first one starts with Steve calling Rob and saying, do you want to come with me on this trip for the newspaper? Mm -hmm. And then in Italy, appropriate to that film, as we may touch on, it's Rob calling him and saying, Hey, they called me. Do you want to go do this? And then in the trip to Spain, we're back to Steve being the one making that initiating call. So I thought, of course, this is going to be the trip to Greece where it's now going to be Rob's turn again. And maybe they'll play with that a little bit. And they actually do subvert the format, right? They actually start with them already on the road. They're in Turkey, I think, instead, right? Beginning this jaunt over to Greece. But then I, of course, appreciated that they did mix it up and try something different. But for me... It wasn't really until the last 30 or 40 minutes that it really hit me hard, Josh, honestly. And maybe it was because I knew it was coming to an end and some of that mortality stuff played better for me or more effectively for me. But sometimes with series like this, they say it's the final film and then you do have to ask that question. Did it did it really pull it off? Did it justify the ending? Do I feel like there's nothing more to say? And in terms of those key themes and storylines, Mortality, as we said, marriage and relationships, the career fixations and ups and downs. The implications, I'll put it this way, the implications of returning home, literally and metaphorically, as they are at the end of this film, 
were so clear and so moving to me. So then that that conceit of tracking Odysseus's journey home, I thought was so perfect. I've liked how they've wedged some of that poetry into all of these films, whether it's Don Quixote and Sancho Panza in Spain, or it's Byron and Shelley in Italy, or going back to the trip, it's Wordsworth and Coleridge. But Odysseus just seemed like the tale they had to tell, the tale they had to follow in the footsteps of to finish this off. Well, and they've always walked, delicately walked that line, right, where they can have these grand intentions for their trips, these re- really pretentious itineraries, but yes. then they'll deflate them along the way. And I think this time it started to feel, you could just sense that, okay, Coogan can go on this long lecture about Homer and Odysseus and Bryden may deflate him. I think my favorite part is when, you know, Coogan's been going on about Greece and Bryden just begins singing the song Greece, <laughs> you know, to, right. which is just a perfect deflation. There ain't no danger we can go too far. We start believing are you now Greece that we can be who we're we are. In Greece. Greece is the word. They think our love is just a growing. You know thing. that you know that Greece is not about the country Greece. When I'm in Greece, I hear the word Greece, I think Greece. Yes, but it's not the same thing, is it? It's a homophone. No, 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 no. It's no. a homophone. It's a, how dare you? How dare you? But it's still, you know, Coogan is still kind of, it's kind of a humble brag in a way. Like, I still get to spew all this information. Um, and mm-hmm. I think maybe here for me, the the reason the mortality theme involving the failing health of Coogan's father just felt like they were kind of forcing it in is... Winterbottom would include these black and white dream sequences that Coogan was having, which would kind of meld his father's situation with with these images that are drawn from Homer's poetry. And it almost it I don't know, it just the mournful mortality thing was incredibly refreshing in the trip. Again, we'll get to that in my list when we get to my number one. Just a surprise. Just just like, wow, this is gonna, you know, mm-hmm. they're really gonna face this element of what they've been dancing around. And four films in, and maybe there's no way around this, you wouldn't want them to jettison that completely because um, it's a virtue. But four films in, it's it does kind of start to feel like, well, they're going to have to include it some way. And this way was maybe, you know, not quite as elegant as it might have been before. I don't think it derails the movie um, at all. I think the laughs are incredibly plentiful. Um, you know, the grease bit that I mentioned and uh, speaking of impressions, I love Coogan's Godzilla animation impression, which is yeah. a bit of phys- yeah. physical comedy that they don't always do, right? They're such verbal comedians and I liked seeing him get physical there. So, so yeah, still a ton of good stuff here. They're Ray Winston bit oh. playing Henry the oh. <laughs> As sort of the Cockney that we expect, the brash Cockney we know and love Ray Winston as. That's probably the the best impression piece in this film, wouldn't really you say? Really good. Yeah, really good. I mean, if you know, all you have to have done is seen Sexy Beast for Ray, Ray Winston yeah. to know how good they are there. Sorry, might I interrupt? I'll do it. Your, your, your new palace, Hampton right. Court, is, is ready, sir. We've had the jacuzzi put in. Would you like to inspect it? Popes and I can't get a f-ing divorce. I'm saying, what about if I say, well, I'm in charge, I'm the head of the church. How about that? What do you think about that then? How about went round all your monasteries and f-ing knocked their shit out of them? I mean, every single f-ing one. So I f-ing level them. How about that, Mr. F-ing Pope? Your, your Royal Highness. Um, all right. So the trip to Greece sounds like Josh. It is maybe your fourth favorite of the series, but still positive on Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely positive. Okay. And I'm very positive on it. 
And still, this is how much I love the series. It's my fourth favorite as well. Not going to make either of our lists, I think. Maybe if we had a little bit more distance from it, we'd find a way to work in a great scene from the trip to Greece. But we're going to continue our countdown now. We have two more of our favorite scenes from the entire series. Josh, what's your number two? Well, this works out well because my number two is that final shot, the ending to the trip to Spain. So the previous movie to this one, to the trip to Greece. And I'm going to spoil it. So I will talk very slowly here. And if you haven't seen the trip to Spain, maybe skip ahead because I do want to get into where they go with this. I just think, you know, it's controversial um, in a way that I recognize. We noted that at the time, Adam, when we reviewed this film, we also both liked the ambition of this final scene. Basically, Coogan mm-hmm. alone, at this point, Bryden has headed back to the UK. Coogan crosses the Mediterranean from Spain to North Africa. He's got moors on the mind. You know, this is this is what he's been pretentiously yammering about the whole movie, is the history of the moors in the region, um, how much he's admired their culture. And he's basically positioning himself as this liberal adventurer, right? That, that's how he wants to see himself in this film, broad-minded liberal adventurer. So he gets to North Africa. Um, he's alone, and he gets stuck on this rural road in the middle of nowhere, no cell service, runs out of gas. And after a little bit, this pickup starts approaching in the distance. And as it gets closer, we see it's full of men sitting in the back yelling, Allahu Akbar, as they bear down on him. And the final shot of the movie is this freeze frame of Coogan's horrified face. So this does something, Winterbottom here does something that the series has done all along, which is which is undercut Coogan, right? Uh, and his claims, but it's doing something political. It's not just comedic here. It's, it's undercutting his liberal bluff, is saying, this is who you wanna be. These are you know the ideas you have in your mind. Um, Here's the real. Here is a reality. I don't want to say the reality because we're getting into dicey territory here. But here is a reality that your pomposity is going to have to be held up against. Um, I completely understand why that depiction could ruffle feathers. I think those are legitimate complaints. But I also found it invigorating in the way it destabilizes Coogan and maybe some of us as smug liberal viewers too. Um, it was just a huge surprise for the series. Um, it's it's probably most obvious curveball. So I, I had to have it on this list, and mm-hmm. I've got it at number two. Yeah, it's a really stunning turn, and it's relatively brief, but this series is all about privilege, right? They're just taken care of at every turn. Yes. And they're they're really feasting. They're feasting on the sights. They're feasting on the food and the drinks. And the outside world, other than their personal life and their careers, the outside world never really actually intrudes at all. There's never a real threat and that's a really good, in this That's series. a really good point because that affluence has increased enormously as the series has gone on, right? The, the first one, they're at home in England. <laughs> yeah. They're on a car, a road yeah. trip. And then, yeah. yeah, you're right. Yeah. I see that Philomena has entered the conversation <laughs> for the fifth or sixth time, <laughs> right? He gets that jab in because now he's an Oscar nominated yes. screenwriter. And I had forgotten, Josh, until I rewatched this film in prep for this, that they do foreshadow it in a way at the beginning of the film. And all these films do a good job of setting up the meta element 
in the trip to Italy, they talk about doing something for the second time and how much it's usually a disappointment. So they're acknowledging the escapade that they're on and what we're all witnessing. And in the trip to Spain, remember, the first time we see him, they've met, they're driving in their car, and they're trying to make it to the ferry to head to Spain, and they're running late. And Rob starts chiding Steve about the fact that, oh, is this a little bit of jeopardy? You trying to introduce some drama into this Mm -hmm. that maybe we'll be late? Well, that's the extent of life-threatening drama for Rob Bryden and Steve Coogan is maybe they'll be late to the ferry. And then Winterbottom kind of has the last laugh at the very end. And then I'll say too, and we could probably get sidetracked. I'm really not prepared to get sidetracked on it. But having just watched the trip to Greece, I did appreciate then that Winterbottom does introduce another moment like this at the very beginning of the trip to Greece, where as you put it, he calls out the the liberal kind of hypocrisy of Steve Coogan. But actually, more to a point, it's Rob Brydon's liberal hypocrisy where Steve runs into, at the very beginning of the film almost, runs into a guy he worked with, a guy who played a version of himself, someone who assists in refugee camps. And he says, hey, could I get a ride? Could you basically take me back to this refugee camp? And it's Rob who says, oh, we got to go. Yeah, <laughs> we got other things yeah. to do. We don't have time for this. And Steve... At least he so wants to put on a show and so wants to purport himself as a man of substance and that he isn't this hypocrite that he says, no, what what else do we have to do? We'll take him. But of course, as soon as they turn around and leave, they comment on it just like we all would and say, what a horrible life. And wow, can you imagine that? And then they get back to their. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's the right move. You know, I I think that's. That's what those two characters would do. And I think that's what a lot of us would do. So I'm glad it went that way. But I'm also I'm glad you brought that up because when that sequence occurred, I was like, oh, they're picking up on the trip to Spain thread yeah. in a surprising way. And and it is just kind of dropped for the rest of the film. Again, appropriately for those characters. Well, but I it kind of like yeah. it got me excited for like, oh, where where is this gonna go? And then it's just kind of like more of a nod than a through line. Yes. Though the fact that they drop it also is so appropriate to these characters in these films. Like we were joking when we were talking about The Dark Knight Rises, right? Where even when Bruce Wayne loses everything, he doesn't really lose everything because rich people never really do. Well, in the trip movies, they kind of make a joke out of the fact that it looked like he was really in dire straits. But you know what? Someone like Steve Coogan, well, he'll be missed and they'll put out a search party Mm. for him and he'll be found. And guess what? Not really a threat after all. Yeah, I am glad they didn't directly revisit where the trip to Spain ended. I'll agree with that. My number two is a scene from the trip to Italy, and it could easily be my number one. It starts with a great retort from Coogan right after Rob asks, where do you stand on Michael Buble? And Steve says, his windpipe, (laughs) which is funny, you know, no disrespect to Michael Buble. I love Michael Buble. That's great Christmas album, Adam. (laughs) Christmas is special to you. It's a special time for me, but <laughs> that that's really just the the beginning of my favorite scene in the trip to Italy. It has all of the elements that make a great trip scene. Location. I think they're inside, they're next to some glass, but it has one of the best views in the whole series. It's a table by the window, gorgeous day, overlooking the water, crystal blue. You can see the mountains around them. It's got one of the best impressions. And it's Michael Parkinson, who, you know, I know is a British chat show host. He's an interviewer. I've seen clips of him before, but obviously that's not a famous impression that every viewer watching this throughout the world would get. Probably most Americans wouldn't. And 
you know that that's who the impression is and that both of them are bang on with their Parkinson. But the impression itself, the mimicry, is really completely secondary to the competitive aspect. Steve needling Rob about being a comedian, not the actor that Steve thinks he is, not as acclaimed. And Rob knows what gets under Steve's skin, and it's putting Steve in the Rob position in relation (laughs) to other more successful performers. So he starts comparing him in his Michael Parkinson voice as if they're on a TV show, even looking to the side like he's talking to an audience. He starts comparing him to other British stars with roots in Northern England, just like Steve. And Steve is playing along, but he is truly playing himself, right? As if he was on the show, having to face these questions and taking these hits to his pride and to his ego. And you can see the frustration on Steve's face and the way he grimaces a little bit at some of the questions. You can hear it in his size when he can't get an answer in. And he just does everything he can to dismiss what Parkinson is saying. And Rob just completely steamrolls him. <laughs> When we think about you, we think yeah. about the 90s, yeah. don't we? We think what? about the 90s. What a wonderful period that was. We think Oasis, Blur, you smacked off your tits in a central London hotel trying to get your life together. But you've turned it around now, haven't yeah. you? Tell yeah. us about your recovery. Well, I'd rather not. I'd rather talk about the uh, new film. Because you are still acting. I think I want that to come across for the viewers. I want them to know. Well, yeah, well, I've done a lot of things. I've done some brand new sort of... Always going to be the catch up with Steve Coogan. Michael Bublé has a new record. And it's about to come out. It's called Christmas is a special just, time for me, and it's a special time for you. He's going to sing a track from it now. Just called film. Holly Leaves and Christmas Trees. Michael Bublé. See, please, for f**k's sake, don't talk over me. <laughs> so I touch on this with my number four pick as well. The other key element for me that makes a great trip comedic scene is when Rob actually makes Steve laugh. So despite all those ego hits, he just cannot deny how funny rob is in this moment it's genuine unscripted laughter and when bryden closes it out so beautifully so sarcastically and says to him don't ever talk over me again that's it that's the part where i just really lose it the most because (laughs) they're cracking each other up well there's another level to this too is that you're right coogan is essentially playing himself at that point and so He's going to lose in this scenario, and there's one way he could not lose, is not participate. But even knowing that, yes. he cannot resist the bit. And so he's the, right. what the higher level is that he wants to be a part of this scene that Brian is envisioning. And even if he's going to lose at the end of it, I love that he wants to just be a part of it. All right, our number one. Mine comes from the first film, perhaps appropriately, and it has to do with the fact that Something I recognized in the trip, maybe for the first time, even though I'd seen Steve Coogan in other stuff before that, he has a sad clown face, right? It's dark, has dark features. It's kind of droopy. And that is really perfect for what this series does so well. The things that we've been talking about, incredibly funny and also very open to the mournfulness of living. And I think there is a scene in the trip that really captures this well. Um, it's it's very funny also. It's why it's at number one, but it's set in a cemetery and it's all about mortality. Um, this is where Coogan ad-libs the eulogy. They're standing before a grave and he ad-libs the eulogy that he hopes to give one day at Bryden's funeral. 
it's almost cruel to Bryden how far he goes here. Uh, but it's also clearly a way for Coogan, we've talked about this already, Adam, to not really confront this the reality of the idea of death mm-hmm. at all, right? Just go right into the comedy and, in this case, sort of the cruelty. Yep. Uh, and it becomes incredibly clear when Bryden tries to take the wheel and take a turn eulogizing Coogan. It's like he's, you know, he's expecting, I'm going to get my turn now. What does Coogan do? Just stomps away. And it's, there's two levels to this. One is that he doesn't want to be comedically one-upped in this scenario, but he also doesn't want to face the specter of his own mortality because that's what the whole thing is predicated upon, right? So he just Mm -hmm. leaves the scene. Um, Who can forget his Tom Jones impression? (laughs) Who can forget that? Huh. Think I better die now. You can yes. say that. Huh. Think I better die now. That's good. Yeah, I know. Well, I'll take over when you do. There'll, there'll, there'll be plenty of... I'll, be, I'll do plenty of Tom Jones when you're dead. Don't worry about that. Oh. Well, thank you. Hey, you're welcome. No, uh... But there'll be affection there. I'd, 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 I wouldn't... I'd, I would never stick the knife in. I might just, like, tickle you with the, a knife. That's all know. good sport. Exactly, exactly. Good sport. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Should it go the other way? It's okay. We don't, I, I'm not asking you to do that. Let's, let's, let's move on. Come on. So it's all here for me. You've got the, the humor, obviously, but also the competitive one-upmanship and this fear of mortality. You even get a Tom Jones impression thrown in for good measure. So you get an impression, too. So it's got to be my number one moment, the eulogy from the trip. I love that scene as well, and maybe rather than comment right now, I'll follow it up with my number one because it's similarly serious, and this really is the beauty of the trip films, that we can both have a number one that would classify as relatively serious compared to most of the scenes and most of the more memorable scenes, but that doesn't mean they're isn't an abundance of humor in these clips as well, right? These scenes are full of great jokes and great jabs at each other as well. So mine comes also from near the end of the trip, maybe not too long after that funeral scene, Josh, and it's them having, I think, their last meal before the trip ends. It's breakfast on a sunny day in England, and they are kind of commenting on how they're both looking forward to getting home. And Steve does what they both constantly do, which is try to put things in the proper perspective, despite whatever skewed vision of that they have. And what, as I said, Steve constantly does in particular, which is pass himself off as if he isn't a hypocrite, as if he is this man who really understands what's important in life. And he says his children are healthy. He says, I'm healthy. I don't need anything else. Without hesitation, I throw all of my awards in the river in exchange (laughs) for knowing that his kids would live a happy life with the qualification. He does throw in that it would definitely be a river, not the sea, because, you know, if he really wanted to, he could send scuba divers to retrieve (laughs) said awards. But Rob being Rob. Calls about oh, it's red it. meat. He poses a challenge. Yeah. This this sort of oh, proclamation just, is red he's just meat waiting. for Bryden. That's it. It just gets at the core of all of these films. It's not just what do you care about more, your individual glory, your professional success, your family's happiness, being satisfied with domestic tranquility. It's what do you really value? Like what do your words, that language, but more importantly, your actions reveal about who you really are? Other way around. What if? Well, if you were to allow your child to have an illness, right, you could win, that's, that's say, a BAFTA. You could have a film BAFTA. If, yeah, of course. If, an illness the child would recover from but would have some discomfort. No. 
Yeah? That's a disgusting idea. I mean, let me, let me up the stakes. Oscar, best actor. Eh? Best actor, Steve. What, for having an ill child? Of course not. Well, well, not, hang on. Not well, a, not what a, what not kind of illness? Appendicitis. Well, I mean... Uh, so they get, but they get, oh, my stomach, oh, my stomach's really hurt. Where's Dad? Oh, he's on location. It's really hurting, really hurting. Ah, doctor comes in, off to hospital. Boom, bang, bang. Oh, I'm weak. Then they're better. Meanwhile, Academy Award winner, That's... Steve Coogan. Uh, now we now we glimpse the real man. What do you mean? I'm just I'm, you know, I'm thinking about. It. I was thinking it through. <laughs> so I just love how he ups the stakes. When he doesn't get the answer he wants, right. <laughs> what he knows is really in Coogan's yes. heart. He ups the stakes to Oscar winner, and that two second oh, pause. It's all the pause after the word actor, right? <laughs> Coogan's brilliant timing as well. After he follows the of course not with what kind of illness, <laughs> <laughs> and that. That Academy Award winner Steve Coogan announcer voice that that Bryden does just to really hit it home as if it's a real thing, as if it could happen. It's it's Coogan just processing the fantasy. And we get that much longer pause followed by his resigned face. And forget Rob's chagrin that he may be feeling for him probably in that moment. You can tell that Steve is actually disappointed in himself. <laughs> I think you can see it in his own face. Sure. He can't believe he can't believe that he admitted it, that that Rob got him on it. And that's when Rob nails the line. He says, now we glimpse the real man. <laughs> that's it. I think that's that's the series, all the films in a nutshell for me, glimpsing the real man. Maybe that's all we did, right? The real Steve Coogan and Rob Bryden is glimpse them throughout the four films. But over the course of these movies, we certainly see, I think who these characters are, really. Not just a glimpse. I think we really do, by the very end of the trip to Greece, see what these men are really made of. Yeah, absolutely. And the pause is key because it, it, is, it does come down to those two things, the language and the timing, right? And, and yep. kind of navigating when to employ each of those tools and knowing that a pause can be hysterically funny can be as hysterically funny as your bit of language you could go for otherwise. So, yeah, this is a great mm-hmm. scene for both of those things. Those are our top five trip series scenes. We hope you had fun, if not listening to us, listening to Steve Coogan and Rob Bryden, maybe again, maybe for the first time. Josh, do you have any honorable mentions that you would like to list? Well, I felt bad that I did. I mean, five slots, four films. I wanted to include one from the trip to Greece. And I think you're right. With some distance, we could probably come up with a handful. Ray Winston, maybe. Um, I'd probably do the Godzilla animation one. I'm just being a Godzilla fan. I loved loved the accuracy of that. The other one from the trip to Spain that I really wanted to squeeze in, I think we talked about it in our review, is when the two of them are having, they're talking to a street busker and Coogan wants to be the expert about which Spanish oh, yeah. restaurant to go to. <laughs> he can't take and it. He just, and this guy comes off the street and starts like, is obviously way more knowledgeable than him. And this is, it ties to my number one pick. Coogan can't take it to the point that he just abruptly leaves. He just leaves the scene, yeah. right? So that's that's kind of another one that gets to the heart of his character. Well, it's all about 
imitation, which is touched on directly at the beginning of the trip to Greece and the idea of reading Aristotle and the poetics and all arts being an imitation in some way. And in that moment, in the trip to Spain, Coogan is clinging to some fantasy that he is following in the footsteps of this author, Lori Lee, this young man who went through Spain and busked, you know, playing his music and got by and wrote this book. And then he comes up against someone who's a better imitation than him. Yeah, who's really doing it. (laughs) Yeah. Exactly. Any others? No, I mean, yeah, like uh, 30 others, but I'm going to call it there. Right. Okay. Well, I've only got a few more. I definitely thought about that eulogy scene, Rob's funeral from the trip that was your number one. And looking at all these movies again, there's a scene equivalent to that in every film in the series. In The Trip to Italy, for example, and I love it, actually. It's Rob asking fairly early on, what will people remember about us in 200 years time? Oh, yeah. And Steve, of course, saying probably my Baptist. And then the, them going through that whole bit where Rob is accepting an award for Steve, even though he perhaps killed Steve and they do the whole role playing <laughs> where he's in prison for it. That cracks me up. An underrated moment in the trip. If you talk about outlier scenes, when they go to the first inn, and we're just getting a sense of this dynamic, mm-hmm. the superiority complex that Coogan has over Rob, how he has to make sure he's always got the bigger room and such. And they get there and they find out that they have to share a room. And Steve calls the assistant to take care of this. And Rob's talking to the woman behind the desk and she asks, are you his assistant? (laughs) And I'm telling you, just watch the look on Rob's face (laughs) when when he's asked that question. And then he finally has to say, well, yeah, in a way (laughs) I am, because that's that's the dynamic. So the other one that I love This gets to the competitive aspect in the trip when they do, for the first time, I think, the come, come, Mr. Bond, you get just as much pleasure from killing as I do. And when Rob knows that he's done it better than Steve, and he has, Mm -hmm. just unequivocally, he did it better than Steve just did it. And so there's a little pause and he goes, fucking yeah. (laughs) He just has to, he just has to needle Steve with that. That cracks me up. And then, you know what? I'm going to go off the beaten path for my last honorable mention here. Emma is a recurring character, Steve's assistant in this series, along with Yolanda, the photographer. I mean, they stick to the format in that Mm -hmm. regard. Played by Claire Keelan. And I do love the moment that really comes right at the end of the trip to Italy, where she's talking to Rob. They're looking down at the water. We see Steve with his son, and they're talking about Roman Holiday. And of course, throughout all of these movies, they're not only doing all these impressions, but they're reflecting on works of art and a lot of movies in particular. And she does an impression. It's Emma doing an impression, not Rob or Steve, of Audrey Hepburn. And she quotes her line, If I wasn't aware of the importance of my duties to my family and my country, I wouldn't have ever come back, she says. And it's a dead-on Audrey Hepburn, much, much better than the one I just did, Josh. But that also gets at the heart of this whole series, right? I mean, that is the perfect ending to that film in terms of those characters having to come to terms with what their duty is in life truly is. Well, and that's that's a much better scene than when the two women, and this is repeated in the trip to Greece again, I still feel squirmy. There's always a dinner scene where the four of them, right, get together for dinner and 
it's usually Bryden who just won't lay off the impressions and the poor women yeah. just have to he, kind of, he can't help himself. Yeah, they just have to kind of sit there and endure it and laugh politely. And I just always feel bad for them. I, I wish they didn't have to do that well, in the trip to Greece. You feel really bad for them though, in the trip to Spain. That's when yeah. they're actively begging. They're actively begging Rob to stop yeah. doing Roger Moore. Yes. And he just refuses. Like even any goodwill he's built up in us through that film, through three films, you're like, no, really, uh-huh. Rob. I can't take it anymore. <laughs> exactly. Put Bane's mask over your face. But but I will say this about that scene. The best part is after it's been going on forever and they want him to stop and he won't. And Steve has consistently been referring to those people he's talking about as the Moors. And so then as he's talking, he changes it to the Muslims. He calls them Muslims. And you know he did it. He changed the word only so it wouldn't prompt Rob to devolve back into his Roger Moore impression. And Rob calls him out on it. Now, why did you say Muslims there? (laughs) I do like that part. There are lots of parts we like in the trip series. Again, the trip to Greece out on VOD this weekend. If you see that film, if you see all the films and maybe you have your own top five or at least a number one, we would love to hear your thoughts or any other comments about the show. Feedback at filmspotting.net. Josh, that is our show. We've done it. We we were as exhaustive on the trip films as we were on the Dark Knight trilogy. I love it. Appropriately so. If you want to connect with Adam and I on social media, we're on Facebook and we're on Twitter. Adam is at Filmspotting. I'm at Larson on Film. Over at Filmspotting.net, you can find our show archives, which has reviews, archives, top fives, going all the way back to 2005. That's where you can also vote in the current Film Spotting poll. We're asking you to choose your favorite decade of Steven Spielberg's filmography. And if you think you have an answer just hearing that, wait until you look at this body of work. To order show t-shirts or other merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop. And you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. Next week on the show, we go back to our Christopher Nolan oeuvre review, our retrospective on the filmmaker's work. It's our fifth entry, The Prestige, and we will do some golden brick spotting, talking about a couple of new films that are available on demand, The Vast of Night and The Painter and The Thief. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. Our music this week is from Brett Shady. More information is at brettshady.bandcamp.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Michael King. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Yeah, I, I I think we just demonstrated that it's very difficult to do. I, I just I totally realized it just hit me two minutes ago. I realized that the only way I was going to be able to do a voice, like literally, I was prepared to just pause. I was going to have you just call me out, and I was just going to be like, I can't do it. I can't do it. <laughs> um, and then I realized that the only way I could even remotely do it is if I said the words Michael Kane. Right, because Sam's <laughs> so, note helps. That Sam's exactly, note is very helpful. Unfortunately, it's only helpful for his name. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Um, film spotting is listener supported.
Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad-free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.